Lynn. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Flop Pod. Oh, so great to be back. How are you doing? Good. You say so great to be back as if you've been like been somewhere. <laughs> well, you know, we have our flop pod dates. We don't get out much. I really look forward to it. <laughs> do you have a, a story? Um, I kind of do. Um, so years ago, back in like 2004, 2005, 2005, winter 2005, spring 2005, sometime in 2005, um, I met uh, Daniel McIver uh, and we had uh, coffee and a, a chat. Uh, and when I, when I went to this meeting, I brought the scripts that I had, like the books that published scripts. Um, and he wrote something in, in each of them. Um, and he was flicking through um, one of the plays and he went, oh, this is the wrong script. I said, what? He said, this isn't like what they published is not the final version of the script. And he just kind of looked at it and chuckled. Um, and then afterwards, I was like looking at what he had written inside each of the, the books that I asked him to sign. And inside uh, that script, uh, it said, fail well, fail often. And to this day, I've kind of taken that to be um, my mantra of sorts. Um, uh, to the point where uh, in uh, the end of our first semester of architecture school, you had to do like a, a manifesto poster. And uh, it, it was supposed to be like, you know, what is your architecture? What kind of architect are you? And I'm like, guys, I've had four months of this. I don't know. The only thing that I could think of to put in this poster was fail well, fail often. And we all had our posters up in the exhibition room and all of my classmates were looking around going, well, that's stupid. Like, what if the building falls down? I'm like, buys, that's not the point. The point is you have to try. You have to try something and then you have to learn from whatever it is you did. You've got to learn, you've got to grow. You've got to fail and you've got to fail well often. That's funny. My story is almost the flip side of that. Um, so I fail often. I try to fail well. Um, sometimes <laughs> I, I, I fail horribly and, and don't learn. So for me, it's all about fail and failing well um, means gathering yourself back together and maybe learning from it so that you can move on. And uh, I remember for the longest time you're in your career and you're taking all the jobs you can, you're doing all the positions you can to better and worse success. Um, and particularly stage jobs, uh, there's a lot of competition among women, certainly, and I'm a specific body type of woman. I don't necessarily get a whole lot of work and a whole lot of roles. So I was really, you know, saying yes to everything. And I remember being on stage in a particular production and just standing there and the audience is there and the lights are on and here I am and I'm doing my thing. And I'm like, wow, I do not believe in what I'm doing. It's <laughs> the show is bad. Um, the theme of of the show are incredibly anti-feminist. Uh, 
I don't stand for this. Why am I here? Uh, and uh, Ruth, <laughs> when we were chatting with Ruth, her Viking story, I was like, yes, I've had a Viking moment of my own. I was embarrassed to be there. I told my family not to come. I um, disguised my, myself as much as possible on stage. I didn't share on social media. I really tried to keep Lynn out of the project uh, because I really knew in my heart that it, it wasn't for me and that was a really big lesson because you want to say yes if you want to be involved and you want to be positive and you want to go for it but some things are not meant for you and saying no is okay too so that's like the flip side of the failing well is being in the moment and saying wow yeah that's not for me that is hilarious I'm so curious about what show this is. I'll tell you. I'll tell you off air. Anyway, um, as, <laughs> uh, you know, Ruth Lawrence just can't be contained. And we didn't even get to her flop story last week. So we're delighted to bring you part two of our interview with the great Ruth Lawrence. Uh, okay. So listen, I, I cannot remember where we left off last time. So hopefully you guys have questions. Well, yes. The main oh, question, wow. uh, well, the main question, um, is we want you to tell us about your flop. We didn't get there last week. Um, so maybe you can start us there this week. You know, when you work for, I've now been, I've act, this is my third, I think this is my 30th anniversary of doing professional shows. Like after I got out of theater school. Um, I, did, I, I did one professional summer before I finished, finished uh, theater school, but it, Luke will be 30 this year. So that means it's 30 years since I started working. If you work for 30 years <laughs> and work as much as I have in as many ways as I have, you are bound to flop regularly. So I want it to be I want to encourage everyone that you should be flopping. I think maybe I said this last week, if you're not failing, you're not learning. That's, that was something that was instilled in me in school. So I, that meant, meant that I was, uh, I, I, I developed a, um, developed the taste for failure, I suppose, in some ways, and, and not a fear of it. Cause I always felt that, you know, you should be able to fail. That should be part of, uh, what your career is. I mean, I, I can't think of anyone who hasn't had failures in their, not just in their lives, but in their work world. So I, I just want to start by saying that in self-defense, healthy to fail. Uh, so the first thing that comes to mind as an actor, and like I said, there's probably many others that your listeners will say, oh God, she was horrible in that part. But the one a thing that I can remember distinctly is I did a show with um, Joan Sullivan was directing it and it was about uh, one of Joan's relatives and so I felt very um, very much like uh, I had to you know get it right um, and we this was in the rabbit town when the rabbit town was on the go Aid Flynn space up on um, I guess that was Mary Meeting Road uh, the old Seventh-day Adventist for everyone, anyone who wasn't at that space yet. So we performed this show there and um, Joan liked to rehearse minimally and really trusted actors. And at the time, I should not have been trusted because I was doing a lot of things and I did not put as much time into learning my lines and doing the homework as I should have. I, I really expected to do it on the work rehearsal room. And so 
I was starting to notice this trend towards the short rehearsals and uh, I got worried about it. At one point I said to her, we, I can't go on. Like, I'm not nowhere near ready. I barely moth book. And she said, oh, you're fine. You're beautiful. It's beautiful, Ruth. Joan, ever, ever generous, uh, would say to me after the end of the rehearsal, when inside I knew, I was like, oh no, like I've never felt this scared. So um, the day came and I think we had done 10 hours of rehearsal. Now, granted, the show was short. I think it might have only been maybe a 30-minute play. So I was getting ready to go on. I was baked, like totally, totally scared. Uh, I'm afraid to say the word that I want to say because uh, I don't know who's listening. Uh, you know, crap baked uh, before the show. And uh, I had gone over to the Arts and Culture Center to borrow some blouses that were right for the period from Marie Sharp. If anyone's ever borrowed anything from Marie Sharp, you know you return it in pristine, if not better condition. You know, you leave it better than you took it kind of thing. And so I was so nervous about doing this show. And we went up, it was an hour before, of course, I always showed up an hour before the shows. And I turned on the iron, walked away from it, and laid the blouses on the, on the ironing board, went and did my makeup and stuff, came back to iron, and I, I mean, I am a costumer. I should know better. I did not test the iron to see how hot that iron was before I put the iron dead center in the middle of the front of the blouse. And it heard it searing like that. Oh my God, I could not believe it. It was a vintage polyester blouse. I thought it was silk or something. I don't know what I thought. Pulled it up. Uh, half of the half of it was on the iron. Half of, there was a whole, massive hole in the peach, beautiful blouse that I had current previously been looking at. So that was it. I just started to freak out inside. On top of being nervous already, I looked down and went, "I've just ruined uh, irreplaceable." blouse that belongs to Marie Sharp and the Arts Culture Center and I could not get it off my mind. I there, Luckily I had borrowed a second one. I put that on. It was nearly so nice. I did not iron it uh, and I went on stage really uh, not calm. You know like I have a I have a bit of a ritual that calms me before the show. I was not calm. I was very panicked if, if for many many reasons. Went out. I think there was a decent crowd there including a friend of mine who was reviewing the show, which I didn't know till after I saw the review. Uh, anyway, went out, did the show. I think I got halfway through, maybe somewhere around the 20 minute mark. Uh, and I believe Nicole Russo and Brian Hennessy were on stage with me. The reason I say I believe is because I blocked most of this out of my mind. Uh, anyway, I was 20 minutes into the show and like has never, happened to me, knock on wood, before or since, I completely dried, like blanked, did not know what had just been said, didn't know what I had just said. Since then, I've developed a line in my head. I'm like, next time I'm just going to say, can you say that again? <laughs> so that I can get myself back on track. But I did not think any of those things in the moment. I blanked completely. I remember looking over at Brian Hennessy, who was, you know, just like any good actor, was just taking it all in and I was very silent and he was still taking it all in. And I, I can't remember if Nicole was on stage, but all I know is I said, excuse me. And I went 
off stage, and luckily the dressing rooms in the Rabbit Town were not that far away, went to my dressing room, I picked up the script. I ran to the dressing room, I picked up my script, calmly walked back on stage with my script inside of a book, like trying trying in some way to disguise the fact. The woman was a writer, so I guess I thought I'd get away with it, but it was a you know a regular size script in, tucked inside a little book, a little book. And I started, I, I read the rest of the play from that point on. I was, I refused to lay it down because I thought I'm just gonna try again. I'll be even more embarrassed. So it was mortifying. And there was friends there, you know, friends were there, but they were very kind after. I was mortified. I, and then I had to do the show, I think three more times. I, ne I never dried like that again, but oh my God. So after that was over, um, I think it was in, I think that was in, it must've been in the fall or wh whatever it was. I did not go on stage for a full year after on purpose. I found other things to do. I got other jobs. Uh, cause I, I thought that was the end of my onstage career. I didn't think I'd ever go back on stage again. And it, it terrified me the, I just thought that's it. I'm over. I'm done. What just like that. I'm washed up. And uh, I, I will never be able to remember a script again because I, I knew I hadn't rehearsed enough, but I thought, you know, adrenaline would get me through 40 minutes. What uh, piece brought you back? That's sorry. Sorry, Mark. I just want to butt in. What's the, yeah. what's the next piece that you acted in? My God, Lynn, that is a really good question. I don't know the answer. That's okay. Um, I, I know it was a full year, so I feel like it, I, I, it was a year that I did not do, I, I didn't perform in, 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 at Rising Tide and Trinity, because I just remember going, okay, I gotta, I gotta get back on the saddle, because it was almost a year later, so it would have been, I feel like it was, I went from May to May, but yeah, I can't remember what it was, maybe, maybe it'll come to me, just, just like the play came to me the next day, maybe it'll come to me during the course of this the rest of this uh, session. <laughs> you're definitely, you're definitely not uh, the first person to put their lines in a book and read them on stage. Um, but you're no. probably the first person to put them in a book and read them on stage and not lose your place. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like every time, because it's that thing. Oh. I'll just put my lines in this book and then if I need them, then you know, I'll just, I'll just be reading my book. I could oh, never, yeah. ever, ever find my place. Oh God, I wouldn't ever. take my eyes off it. I couldn't take my eyes off it. I was so terrified of letting my other actors and Joan down. It was also a piece about Joan's family. So I feel that her, I'm almost certain she would remember, but I, I'm almost certain her, many of her family were there and I just felt like, just such a horrible disappointment. It was, yeah, it was pretty bad. Like I, if it was a fictional person, I think I would have had a lot easier time. And, and everyone's dropped lines. I mean, it, you know, everyone's dropped lines and, and I, I do that regularly. You know, you're in the moment and somehow or another, for whatever reason, you know, you, the, the same words don't come out in the right order or something every time. But, um, but my God, to dry completely was, that was the first and thank God, I'm almost afraid to say it. I don't, I don't want to say, 
I'm not going to jinx myself. I'm very superstitious. Well, knock on wood for you. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that you have a little bit of a device now as an actor. If you find yourself in a jam, you just, you'll just ask for your cue line again, because that's, yeah. a human would do that. That makes total yeah. sense. Have, have you changed your approach to directing? Did that affect um, how much prep time you give actors or anything? Oh, yes. Yes, I would say it definitely definitely did. Um, I, yeah, I've always been someone who believed in, you know, like a minimum hour uh, per, what it, however many minutes it runs on stage, I like an hour of rehearsal time. So uh, I, I don't think I've, like a show that I've directed from beginning to end for the very first time, I don't think I've done any less than that. There's some shows that I've remounted that we've done it faster, um, but certainly something I'm rehearsing for the very first time putting it up. I, I like that because I need it as much as they do, to be honest. You know, like sometimes it takes that, I feel as a director, no matter how much prep you've done beforehand or how, how well you know the show, you still are making discoveries because you have living, breathing human beings in front of you who are actually giving you way more than you could ever dream up yourself and usually better than you could ever dream up yourself. So it takes that long to kind of make all those adjustments and, and get it all, all working. I also, I had another show, it, I, I don't, I, I guess I would call it a flop, certainly from a, uh, well, it, I was an actor, certainly from a um, con confidence point of view, it wasn't anything like I didn't remember my lines or anything, but I did do, and this is the only time it's ever happened to me, I did a show one time that I did not enjoy, uh, you know, it was, it was part of a rep season and, and you get cast in certain things. It's like as cast, you're going to do this, this and whatever else you got. And I got cast in a show. I had to play a Viking and even the costume designer knew how I, I just had no confidence. Uh, if you know me, I am the least Viking person probably <laughs> that you've ever met. Uh, I'm not tough. I'm not rough. Um, and I could not live in the conditions that the Vikings lived in. Anyway, I, I had a lot of trouble getting into the role, <laughs> just, to say the least. And uh, even the costume designer, you know, when she gave me my costume, I was like, oh man, I'm so bad. I'm so bad in this part. I can't do it. I'm embarrassed. And I really was, I was so embarrassed. So she gave me my outfit, which, you know, was a lot of wool blankety stuff and a hat it did not have horns i thank her so much but it did it was a viking hat <laughs> i looked ridiculous oh my god i looked ridiculous i, I used to put it on <laughs> sorry i used to put it on backstage because i played <laughs> I think I played five different roles. <laughs> I played five different roles in the show. And this was one scene. <laughs> so I used to be back there quick changing into this outfit. And I every time I'd catch a look at myself in the full life. <laughs> oh and I just thought, oh my God. Like what kind of friggin' actor am I? <laughs> I cannot feel this at all. Nothing. So anyway, 
I did it and I used to go out on stage every night and uh, my cheeks were blood red. I was so embarrassed every time I walked down to do that part. So that's all fine and good, you know. <laughs> all I kept I kept telling people, don't, don't come see me. <laughs> I just thought I could escape. <laughs> Mortal embarrassment. I kept saying, don't, don't come see me. Just don't come see that show. Please, like, do me a favor. I am horrible in it. That didn't help, probably didn't help my confidence. Anyway, I ran into someone I really respected, a radio producer. <laughs> I ran into him at, like, I was getting a coffee before the show. And so was he. And I was like, hey, you know, what are you doing? What are you up to? And I, I knew I was on way to go see the show. And I said, oh, I'm, he, he said, oh, I'm going to see that show tonight. And I went, no, 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 don't, don't come. No, 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 not this one. No, don't, no. See, see the other, see the other show that's up tonight. He goes, no, what do we, what, what do you mean, Ruth? I said, please don't, please. I'm terrible. I'm terrible in it. I'm so bad. And he said, oh, God, actors, you know, that kind of thing. Because he had been an actor at one point. So lo and behold, when I first came out, because I did have another role first um, earlier in the show, I came out first in that role. And of course, who was the first, first person I saw in the theater? I is jumping right out at me. I'm like, oh, there he is. He's there. He didn't did not, did not heed my plea. And so uh, I, I did that scene. I did a couple more scenes. And I kid you not. In the middle of the scene that I come out, try to do my best biking, red cheeks, I see him get up and walk out. And I thought, I fucking knew it. I knew it. I, oh, I told him not to come. Anyway, so I thought, oh, this is the worst. So I got through the show and I saw him the next day because he was on vacation. <laughs> so I saw you at the show last night. He went, I couldn't stay. I went, I know. I know. I, I, I don't want to talk about it. I told you. <laughs> and that was, that was that show. I was terrible. They did continue to do that show. Thankful, thankfully without me. I was awful. I was so embarrassed. Uh, and it, it, it also kind of had a long-term effect because I had a hard time going back on stage after that too. Mark, you may have been in that show. Maybe you remember. I'm not going to too many. I, I, I was about to ask uh, uh, if I said, um, Hagen Doss and Yogan Yes, I think so. Okay. <laughs> I was actually yes, I up in the booth uh, running the slides. Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. That's the one. Yep. Oh yep. my God, I was mortified. And of course, like the writer I could never talk to because I was so bad. And uh, which, which is too bad because I really, you know, I adore the writer. I was just so awful that I, and I don't even, I don't even know why, Mark. I don't know, why was I so bad? Do you have the answer? I think there was just, there was, it was, it was a whole lot of things uh, involving a whole lot of people that just made that show challenging. Something else entirely. Yeah, it was, I, it was, it was certainly a challenge. I, uh, Tina Randall always says, it was the straw that broke Ruth Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny because there's people that I run into like now and that show will come to mind and we'll just sit there and laugh about it for like an hour. Oh man. Oh my God. I was just horrendous. I mean, it's like literally embarrassingly bad. I was embarrassed of my own 
self. So that is a flop. Boy, that was, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself too. You know, it was interesting. It was very interesting. We know that artists are more marketers than they are artists nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, in terms of the grants, you're basically, you have to sell yourself and then you get on the radio or, you know, you get on the NTV uh, arts report and you have to tell everyone how this is the best show that's ever happened in the face of the planet. And of course, everything can't be the best show. That's right. <laughs> and and yeah. some shows that you do are going to be bad because that's the, like, that's the odds. Everyone does yes. their best. Everyone tries their best, but sometimes things just don't work out and that's every aspect of life. But I think particularly in the arts right now, and you, and I was talking to Sean about it when we were chatting with him and just like in terms of, it used to be with the arts brands, you had to almost have the handout and be like, Oh, I deserve it because I'm the hardest off and we're struggling. And now mm -hmm. people don't want to see you struggle people no. want to people want to hear how awesome you are and it's very like it's very misogynistic quite honestly um mm -hmm. and it's just like you know on balls to the wall this is the best thing you're ever going to see in your whole life mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. and you have to write that as a grant and i just don't think that's honest and i no. think at, at the heart of every arts piece is uh, truth right it, you know when someone on yeah. stage is telling the truth uh you know if the writer has told the truth in in the play you you even if you're the you're the Viking, your truth was you were not the Viking. You know, yeah. like that that's yeah. it. And and I think like it's it's an <laughs> X-ray, right? The arts is an X-ray. Um, and people will know if it's true or not. And so just the whole point of this podcast was instead of, you know, selling your piece, it, it, it just let's talk about our process a little bit more because mm -hmm. we all know the truth is everything's not great. Yeah. But it, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be making it. That is so true. I think that really strikes to uh, a struggle that a lot of artists are having too, Lynn, actually. Um, uh, I recently wrote a, um, an Arts Council grant, actually, where, uh, and I'd like to be honest, I like to say, like, these are struggles, these are, these are failures, these are successes. And I, I think the last one, I, I, I went back and looked at it afterwards because I thought, mm, they turned it down because of that. And there was a line in there where I said, you know, I this was not an absolute success. It was successful in some ways, um, but we learned from our failures. And if we're not, if we're not failing, how are we going to know when we ever succeed? Like exactly what you just said. And I thought it's a dangerous thing to say these days. Not, not that it's dangerous. It's controversial to say that. And I, you know, like you both, uh, I don't, I think maybe that's a social media thing. Everything has to be the best, the best, the best. You know, when you think about so social media, we only show our best lives. We only show our best pictures. We only show our um, uh, most uh, flattering side of ourselves. And there's just, artistically, there's not a lot of interest in that. You know, but perfection can be really boring. But I also think um, there's an economy aspect. Like, I absolutely agree with you. I call it the Instagram culture. Um, but there's also an economy in the arts. Um, it's why you see a big predomination of musicals uh, happening. Mm -hmm. It's because you can sell them. Um, yes. And that's the work that people are making 
is the work that you can sell um, because the production values and the expectations have raised and you need to gain the capital in like there aren't any scrappy rabbit town productions anymore there aren't any half hour plays anymore mm -hmm. um I, I just because the economy particularly of the performing arts um but i also think it's across all genres visual arts too just the expectation um of the audience has has shifted um and uh i just think there's there's less interest um, in scrappy work. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Probably the one area that I feel like has been as um, not not benefited, but uh, has um, remained a little bit true is stand up comedy because it's so bare. And I and because my son's a comedian, I go see a lot of stand up comics these days. And you know that like they often will talk about bombing and you know like I bombed this, I bombed that, or that didn't go over. And my son had a really interesting observation one time uh he said yeah i wasn't telling the right jokes so it wasn't that he bombed he said i wasn't telling the right jokes to that crowd and i said oh that's interesting he said yeah you got to know like you got to have enough jokes so that if you know oh they're not digging this i gotta give them something else he said if the problem happens when you just blindly keep going the way you're going and the audience is never getting it and i thought that's very interesting because it is a very raw art form it's like my god i remember when he told me he wanted to be a comedian i thought i can't think of anything scarier than getting up on stage with the intention of making people laugh and like if they don't laugh then it's over like your set's over <laughs> if you they never laugh your career is over and um and i found that very raw and brave i have not yet been able to do it um it, like to do anything of that sort i mean like to get up alone and try to make people laugh I, I like to have other people there and not like not rely on the laugh but rely on the story but it did make me uh look at, at truthfulness and awareness of the audience very differently when i started seeing comedy shows because uh, often also the comedian will come off thinking they bombed and i i'd never felt they bombed like maybe people weren't rolling in the aisles or whatever you know laughing or maybe they weren't it wasn't a continuous laughter but it, sometimes the comic is there to make a point <laughs> believe it or not and uh and sometimes that comes across perfectly fine and people don't actually laugh out loud that much but you can still appreciate what they're doing so yeah, it was, it's interesting because that still exists in that art form. I'm, I'm sure it does in others too, but it was it's the place that I have recently noticed more risk. I see more risk happening uh, among our uh, stand-up comedians, especially people who are just trying it uh, like early on in their careers, like just trying it for the first time, just figuring it out. A lot of women, and I, I love that because it's man it's hard to get up in front of a crowd it's hard to be a woman getting up in front of that crowd too it's so yeah as a, as sort of an artist who does really everything you're you're an, an actor a producer a writer a director uh you started with costumes and props mm. um i've seen you refinish furniture and reupholster things yes yeah uh is is are, are we gonna see you know ruth lawrence getting up at yuck yucks doing a set oh god no uh, i luke kind of challenged me a long time ago asked me if i would do that because i uh, i have a terrible habit when he's 
like when he's doing a show, I feel like I'm in the living room with him. I'm not a heckler, but I feel like I'm in the living room with Luke when he's doing his shows. And sometimes he'll refer to me. And of course I feel like I can talk back, but not in a heckling way, just like acknowledging that I'm there. And it's, I learned my lesson. I could not do that. It, it was terrible. Um, because it just encourages all kinds of bad behavior in the audience. But um, we did a show though, Mark, this is the funniest thing. We did a show that Lois Brown uh, encouraged us to do because Luke and I were trading stories. I was turning 48, he was turning 24. So I was gonna be double his age for the first and only, thank God, the last time in my life. Now, we, now we're just closer together. Um, and it was also, we're also both uh, Chinese year the horse children. and. We're, we definitely are horses. Anyway, we, we, just, we started telling each other these stories. And Lois, we either told Lois we were doing it, and she said, oh, I want to come. I want to be a part of that, that process. So we had written some of them down. I sent it to her, and she was like, yeah, this doesn't work on paper, <laughs> which is true, because it was very stand-up-like. So uh, we had to tell her the stories. So that was how we did it. Anyway, uh, the short version of the story is we would go in and rehearse. We had, I think, maybe two weeks rehearsal because uh, I was going to do it as a white rooster show. And Luke kept saying, what, what are we doing today? What, like, why are we here? And I said, well, we're rehearsing the show. And he was like, why? We're going to do it on stage. I was like, yeah, but we rehearsed it. That's what you do in theater. He goes, this is killing it for me. It's killing it. <laughs> he hated the rehearsal process. <laughs> Uh, so that's when I knew I would, could not be a stand-up comedian because if I can't rehearse like that, because he was like, it's not spontaneous. I know the story. I can just tell it. And I was like, no, no, no. That's not what Lois wants to do. Anyway, we did find a happy medium between the two of us. I got all the rehearsal I wanted. He got just as much as he needed. And Lois was satisfied. And the show was really successful. And we did it almost like a game show, but it was really mostly stand-up. So that's the closest I've ever come and I, it is the closest I will ever come. I, I don't think I got the guts for it, Mark White. I don't think I got the guts. Is there anything that you kind of learned from that process that you continue to use or that you, you know, would use in the future? Yeah, from the process with Luke? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I certainly learned to trust the story. And I learned to trust the details of the story. Like, even if you forget a detail, because I have a terrible habit. When, if I forget something, when I'm telling a story, I'll go, oh, but first you need to know. And then I go back and like try to fill in a detail. Kills the story. Because then people have to pick it up again. Uh, so from Luke, I learned, just keep going with it. Try not to backtrack. Unless it's a vital detail, try not to backtrack and just like keep the story going and keep the pace going. And you know, feel it out each time. And the audience, as he's very right in saying, the audience is as much of the show as anything because they're telling you what they like. And if they don't like it, like get that story over with and get onto something that they do like. And that's what we found with that show was like give the audience exactly what they're looking for. It was very interesting. 
Ruth, you, um, so you've worked with your son, Luke, who's of course uh, a stand-up comic. Um, you work uh, with Lois, who's a multi-interdisciplinary artist, really. Um, you work with emerging artists, artists of all different kinds of uh, backgrounds. You certainly hired myself and Mark when maybe other people were not. Um, how has that become part of your process? Because I do see you taking people under your wing um, and you're definitely a generative uh, presence in the arts yeah. community. And it's very easy, I think, for artists to kind of stick with their own bubbles and their own teams. And there are people that are your go-tos and you like, but it seems like you're, um, for lack of a better term, you're just always expanding those those bubbles of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I am. Um, and again, it wasn't something that was necessarily conscious. Uh, and I don't even know that I set out to do it. I always knew that I, I, I had um, a great desire to work with new people because when I first came here, um, everyone had to take a chance on me. No one knew me. I was, you know, a little girl from St. Jackson. I'd gone to Toronto to school, which at a time that nobody really was doing that. So I always have um, always felt that it was a, a privilege but also a responsibility to work with new people all the time. And, and I mean, you know, I, I come back to work with you over and over. So it's not just that I am uh, filing through an endless list of people, but I do find that I, I like to see new things and I like to see how um, people interact with each other in ways that maybe are just spark a little bit of magic. I, I like I said, it's sometimes it's not, conscious certainly when I started it wasn't conscious maybe it's more so now because I do I have an intense interest in knowing what younger emerging uh, diverse artists what's on their mind what stories they want to tell I'm interested in those stories I want to hear them um, and maybe Lynn it goes back to what you're saying is we, we don't know the story and so there's a inherent risk in it maybe that's it so you know you don't quite know what you're going to get. I think I, I think I'd be very bored if I was always working with the same sets of parameters every time, whether that's the people or the circumstances or the same types of play. I think I would be very, I'm not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't find that very fulfilling. So I like to mix it up. I like to do different things. I'm directing an opera next year. I've never directed an opera before. And um, I know, I already know that's going to be a challenge. Uh, but I'm, I'm working with people that I really trust. There's a lot of people around me that I've reached out to and said, look, I, I have these ideas and I feel they might work. Do you think they will work? And then they've said yes, mostly uh, so far. And I know that as I get into it, they'll tell me, mm, maybe, maybe that's not working quite so well. So I, I also have a great desire to learn, I suppose. Maybe that's the other part of it. But yeah, I, I do embrace variety difference um and and i like a I, I like a big inclusive group so uh, i find you get a lot more out of that when you sort of mix all those things together it's it's uh it's often quite intriguing and maybe i don't know what the end result's going to be because i i don't think i've ever gone into a process envisioning something and it turned out exactly like i wanted but um that's one thing I learned from film is that the, the film that I wrote or that I see written on a page, I know will look worlds different from the one that I see in my imagination when I first read it. So 
I, I, I like that. I like that. I, I know it's not going to look like I imagined it. That's, that's kind of, there's a certain attraction in that. I think like there's some guesswork, there's some surprise for everybody, including me. What's your dream project? Oh, my dream project is a film actually. Um, and it's a film that I wrote with Sherry White. Uh, we wrote a play. The first play that my company, White Rooster, mine and Sherry's company did, was called The Housewife. And we had, there was such joy in writing that play. I only knew Sherry for maybe two years. It wasn't long uh, when we, uh, there, there was an art, uh, it was Year of the Arts or Festival of the Arts or something. They did a call for proposals and we put in a proposal for a show we called Our Daily Bread. And we knew it was going to be about two sisters. And we knew that we wanted uh, there to be an element of 1949 in it. So what we ended up doing was we wrote the whole thing as an analogy. So you can watch uh, uh, the play, The Housewife and never know this ever, but it was all based on uh, the road to confederation for Newfoundland. So each character that was described was described about a person in history that was like that. Uh, all the dates that we used, there were little factoids within it uh, that we hid. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. So we just used all the facts that we had and told a completely different story, an analogy that was, we, that was what we set out to do. And uh, we wrote, we ended up writing three different endings for the damn thing, because we couldn't decide how we felt Newfoundland turned out. <laughs> I guess it was the 50th or the 60th anniversary, I can't remember what it was, 50th, I guess. What would it have been? Yeah, the 50th, 19, 1999 was 50 years, right? Yeah, so it was 50, we were 50 years in and we, we hadn't decided where Newfoundland was, so we didn't have a good ending, we kept, messing around with them and changing it all the time. Uh, but, but after that play, uh, it, got it, got, uh, it got produced. It got produced by four different companies. It got published uh, by um, um, Signature Press on the mainland, which was a big thing for us, we couldn't believe. And then we really believed in the relationship between two women. So we applied for and got telefilm writing money and, and at that time, Telefilm, and it, maybe it does again now too, but at the time it was really, uh, there was a screenwriters program for new screenwriters and Sherry had written one film already. So under her name, we got in and wrote this film that both of us regularly go back and look at and go, yep, that was pretty good. And neither of us have had the money to make it because it's a period piece. So we both have kind of said, okay, whoever gets to it first gets <laughs> gets to direct it and I both of us give have given each other uh, the other's blessing but it's a beautiful film script it's it's even it's a much more successful film script than it was a theater script and the theater script was pretty pretty good um so yeah that's my dream project so in my list right now I go okay by the time I get enough money like by the time I earn enough money as a woman director in Canada to be able, like to have that kind of budget by the time I earn that budget, is it would probably have to be my fourth or my fifth film. So I ju I'm just about to release my first one. So I'm hoping I live long enough to get to it.
Ruth, we're going to let you go because you have a hundred other things to do and you're hosting another project in a, a little bit. But um, is there anything that you want to plug? Is there anything that you want people to know about? We could talk to you for days and weeks and hours and not cover, um, you know, the breadth of your career or interests. But is there a takeaway that or anything you'd like people to take a look at? Yes, there is. So, of course, in these gloomy days, I don't uh, have a lot of theater projects that are absolutely going ahead, but I do have a film that I'm just about to finish. We're in the color correct and composing uh, end stages of those uh, post-production. And it's an absolutely stunning script written by Emily Bridger, who I have um, worked, and worked with and admired before. Uh, she wrote this beautiful beautiful piece and one day I was at the Women's Film Festival and we were both at a panel together or a, or a workshop and this little tap came on my shoulder and when I turned around there was Emily and she said would you like to direct would you be interested in directing my first feature and I thought I think I said to her I've been waiting for this moment my whole life <laughs> no one's ever asked me to direct their feature film and I said yes yes I would and let's talk about it, we can make it happen. And I think before two years were up, we had the green light to do it. So that uh, beautiful project uh, that was produced by Jen Jennifer Holly, Jenny Holly, and executive produced by my very good friend, I just spoke about Sherry White, and it stars Rhiannon Morgan, Emily Bridger, Martha Bernard, with incredible support from Kyra Harper, Des Walsh, Monica Walsh, Luke Lawrence. There's a family theme, you can tell. Uh, Pat, Patricia Andrews, Andrew O'Brien. You know the singer, Andrew O'Brien, who actually started acting out with us out in Trinity? He's in it, and so is this wonderful actor from Toronto, Andy, McQu Andy McQueen. Oh. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to it. Everything about it, I am in love with. <clears throat> um, the score is gorgeous. Justin Mertzoy is doing the score. The soundtrack is made up of some of my favorite artists in Newfoundland. Not all of them, because of course I couldn't fit in everyone, but some of my favorite artists uh, from here. And I absolutely had my dream DOP Stephanie Weber be around from Montreal, come and shoot it. So yeah, I was so blessed. I had incredible crew of friends, people I've worked with on, you know, many of my short films all came out to play with us because we didn't have much money and we didn't have much time. But, uh, you know, there's some people who called up, uh, my gaffer, call, he was the first person who called up and said, I want to do that film. I don't care what it's paying. And, I, and my producer said, do you know a guy named Colin Mertzoy? I said, hire him. I know it's not my place, but hire him. <laughs> I love him. And the fact that he called you up to do, you know, uh, something for practically nothing just made me go, yeah. And, lo and lots of my friends came out. I and not just friends, you know, colleagues, people I've worked with lots. Um, very talented, talented people came out to, to be on that film. So I'm looking forward to that. It's supposed to be released in 2020. And I'm still hoping for the best, We, you know, it, this is a bit of a write-off year, but maybe we'll make it. It sounds like people want to work with you. Maybe that was it. I didn't think of that. 
<laughs> oh, I also, I also had a great editor, uh, Kimberly McTaggart in Nova Scotia, who, um, yeah, she was just great. But yeah, I guess so, Mark. I, I mean, I feel very honored every time someone agrees to work with me. And I've, I, when I was in theater school, my teachers used to, one, my various teachers, but one in particular used to say, my best career advice is surround yourself with people more talented than you. And it's great advice. It's great advice. What can I say? I try to, I t try to take it at every turn. Ruth, we love you. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I, I, love, I, lo I love your podcast and I, I can't wait to listen to all the rest. And I can't promise you I'll listen to this one, but I'll try. Thanks, Ruth. <laughs> okay, thank you guys. Thanks, okay. Mark. Thanks. Bye. Bye, Lynn. Bye. Bye. See ya. So everyone's transparent. Excellent. <laughs> I'm so transparent you can't see me. So, <laughs> God, brutal. Is it all off now? We were recording. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs>